from WBUR Boston and Slate, hello and welcome to The Checkup. Our solidly reported and also somewhat opinionated take on health news you and your family can use. I'm Carrie Goldberg. Hey, Carrie. Rachel, how are you? Good. I'm the co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. And in my past life, I was Boston bureau chief for The New York Times and health and science reporter for The Boston Globe. I've also co-authored a book, Three Wishes, a true story of good friends, crushing heartbreak, and astonishing luck on our way to love and motherhood. Yikes, a mouthful of a title. <laughs> I can never but it's remember. a fabulous book. I'm Rachel Zimmerman, also co-host of the Common Health blog, and in my past life, I was a healthcare reporter at the Wall Street Journal, and I also co-authored a book, The Doula Guide to Birth: Secrets Every Pregnant Woman Should Know. And just to state the obvious, we're not doctors. We're journalists. So we're not claiming any medical expertise of our own. We just do the reporting and talk to the people with the medical credentials who are experts. So on our podcast, we'll be discussing various hot topics in health, everything from sexual problems and hopefully solutions to students' mental health. Fitness snake oil. I have a few opinions about the insanity workout and also things like vaccine controversies that are so widespread. Today, some topics that are very close to our hearts, pregnancy and childbirth. And we take on three widespread myths. First of all, that when you're pregnant, bed rest is good. Good for you. Second, the myth that when it comes to labor pain, your only real options are an epidural, a big honking needle in your back, yeah. or nothing at all. And the third myth is that once the baby's born, you should always snip the umbilical cord as quickly as possible. Now, these are a few things that you may not read in the best-selling pregnancy Bible, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Which has been on the bestseller list for- 600 weeks? Yes, yes. And even though many of us are clearly buying it, many of us who have read it and used it very much hate this book. Right, <laughs> this a Bible. pregnant friend of mine just told me she's been banned from reading it. And I actually, I was foolish enough to read it in my first pregnancy and found it one of the more terrifying documents I've ever read. And by my second pregnancy, I was smart enough not to crack it once. Right. I mean, it's all about what not to eat, what kind of sex not to have, right? Right, right. right. It had the deadly oral sex myth. Yes. They've corrected that, right? Yeah, no, oral sex is okay now. Phew. I, I think the basic problem is it doesn't really tell you the most important thing, that at least I learned during my two pregnancies, which is what? you have to trust your instincts. Except what if your instincts are wrong or what if your instincts conflict with the data? Actually, here's a perfect example of just what you're describing. Mm -hmm. When I say bed rest, what does that make you feel? <laughs> it makes me feel like I want some right now. Exactly. Yes. Cuddly, relaxed. Right. Except that personally, I know better because I was put on bed rest with my second pregnancy when I was 31 weeks pregnant. And it was not fun at all. It was hell, actually. Well, exactly. And in a recent paper in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology, one doctor called it unethical. She went so far as to say prescribing bed rest is unethical. Rachel... How can it be unethical or harmful? I mean, you're just lying there doing nothing. You would think. Yeah. But Carrie, I asked the author, Christina McCall Herrera, who is a fourth-year OBGYN resident at the University of North Carolina, that very question. I got interested in this topic after having seen bed rest and pregnancy affect several of my patients' lives in a negative way, mainly psychologically with things like depression or issues with their uh, relationships with their families and partners even. Um, so just to interrupt, you've had patients who have 
literally gotten clinically depressed being subject to bed rest oh, yeah. during pregnancy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have several patients who have depression. And of course, depression has all sorts of implications for the pregnancy, correct? It sure does. And increases the risk of postpartum depression, which can affect bonding of the baby and the mother, which to me is probably the most detrimental thing. So you recently wrote a paper called Therapeutic Bed Rest in Pregnancy, Unethical and Unsupported by Data. So why is bed rest in pregnancy unethical? It sounds so benign. Bed rest has not been proven to be beneficial in any setting for an obstetrical indication. It violates the ethical principles of autonomy by not providing informed consent for women and reviewing risks, benefits, and alternatives to bed rest. It violates beneficence because there are known harms, and it also violates justice because it is utilizing resources which may otherwise be used for better purposes and not for an unnecessary intervention. So why is this continually prescribed? Why is it so pervasive, do you think? That's a great question, and I think that the answer is twofold. From a provider's perspective, when we are presented with a medical issue that may otherwise not have a treatment, it's our desire to do something for the patient. So you're saying it kind of makes the doctors feel good in the face of having nothing else to do? Sure, it certainly does. And the flip side of that is the patient's perspective, which is, you know, women feel some sense of maternal sacrifice. You know, they, they want to do whatever they can to help their baby. And Bed rest provides them an outlet for that, although, like we said before, this has not been proven to help anything. So, Rachel, Dr. Herrera touches on something really important here. It's it's such a deep instinct when something might be going wrong with your pregnancy to just want to go to bed and not let anything get any worse. Right. We're always sacrificing. And this is really widespread. Apparently, up to 95% of OBs recommend some kind of activity restriction all the way up to full-out bed rest for women. Wow. So there are roughly 4 million births a year in the United States. Right. What does that mean? How many women are on bed rest? So that's about 800,000 women per year during their pregnancy get prescribed bed rest. It's wow. huge. That's like a major city all in bed. Exactly. Yeah. And for what? Well, That's for the, what? Tell me. So I talked to Adam Wolfberg. He's a doctor here in Boston, and he specializes in maternal fetal medicine. There are three major problems in obstetrics for which bed rest is commonly prescribed. Preterm labor combined with a short cervix, preeclampsia, and growth restriction. Now, preeclampsia is a condition where the blood pressure increases, women develop protein in their urine, and in the worst case scenario, their liver can um, begin to fail and they can develop seizures. That happened in Downton Abbey, right? That's right. That's what she had. Absolutely. It's my belief that Lady Sybil is at risk of eclampsia. What is that? A rare condition from which she is not suffering. Tell him why you think she may be. Her baby is small. She's confused, and there's far too much albumin, uh, that is, protein, in her urine. Dr. Clarkson, please. We've forgotten my mother is present. But we can deal with it a little better these days, right? Well, we have a medication to prevent seizures, but that's it. We certainly can't prevent it. Most of the things we worry about in pregnancy are the kind of events where there's absolutely nothing that patients can do to prevent a bad outcome. Preterm delivery, there's nothing you can do. It's going to happen or it's not. 
Growth restriction, same thing. And preeclampsia, my goodness, if ever there was a disease that comes out of thin air for no apparent reason and cannot be prevented, that's one of them. But bed rest, unfortunately, doesn't help. And indeed, there's mounting evidence that it's harmful. Yes. The risks are bone demineralization, where the bones begin to break down. The muscles sort of atrophy. Weakness takes hold. And then there are really serious risks like thromboembolism, blood clots in the lung or even the brain. The pulmonary embolus is the one that we are so scared of. Those events are more likely when women are or when any patient is not active. What about mental health? I know when I was pregnant, one of the things that kept me sane was being able to swim or walk every day throughout, even when I was huge at the end. I think that on the face of it, a lot of pregnant women would say, oh, if I could rest in bed for a day or two, that would be awesome. But you're absolutely right. Over time, the opposite occurs, and depression is more common. And the other piece that we haven't talked about is the economic consequence of not being able to work, not being able to support a family, and the lost income related to bed rest in pregnancy. Some estimate at some place between $1 and $5 billion. So it's real money, and it really affects families. So can you talk a little bit about how we got to this point with bed rest where it's widely prescribed. I think that one of the reasons that bed rest has made sense to obstetricians and to patients is because they conceptualize the uterus as sort of a vessel and the opening is the cervix and the whole thing is upside down. And so it theoretically makes sense that if you sort of tip the patient onto her back, you've changed the forces of gravity, and the contents of that vessel are now less likely to fall out the opening. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to me, too. The problem is, is that when you actually get into the physics of it, it doesn't work that way. Why is that? I consulted an old friend of mine, Dr. Michael House at Tufts Medical Center, who is, believe it or not, an expert on the physics of the cervix. And Dr. House explained to me that the forces on the cervix are really more related to the pressure of the amniotic fluid inside the cavity, also related to the stress on the cervix from the walls of the uterus, and probably most importantly, this sort of sticky glue-like substance that holds the membranes to the wall of the uterus and keeps the cervix closed, and that gravity doesn't play that big a role. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what you do in your practice. The first thing is, is I always tell my patients that there is absolutely no evidence in clinical trials that bed rest is effective at reducing any of the outcomes for which we prescribe it. That said, and I think this is a point that's often overlooked, when we have this sort of benign intervention that women can take charge of on their own, that is reducing their activity, doing a little bit less, perhaps reclining, that women somehow feel that that is empowering. It's something that they can do to perhaps improve the outcome of their particular pregnancy. And that decision in and of itself is an empowering one. So basically, there's no evidence that this helps. But if you want to feel like you're doing something you could do this. That's right, Rachel. You're, you're not giving them much to hold on to there, right? I well, mean, I think the alternative is to take everything away, to say the only thing that we as obstetricians have prescribed for generations doesn't work. So do you think there's sort of a placebo effect going on? I think there is, and there's another side to it, which is that let's suppose that this woman goes on to deliver a premature baby at 30 weeks, and she was not on bed rest. Someone at some point is going to say to her, you weren't on bed rest, why not? And she will wonder, did she 
do something? Did she not choose bed rest when she could have prevented that preterm delivery? That's ridiculous. But nonetheless, she will think that because it's just sort of ingrained in women to blame themselves for bad outcomes in pregnancy, even though they have nothing to do with it. Right. So the takeaway, what should women think about when they're considering bed rest during pregnancy? Bed rest is not an effective intervention. But sometimes interventions that aren't demonstrably effective based on well-designed clinical trials feel good and feel better than doing absolutely nothing in a situation which just feels so powerless. Okay, Rachel, I, I can relate to that. I, I'm, when I cast myself back to how I felt when I was in a pregnancy that was going wrong, what I most cared about was that the baby just be okay. And that no matter what the outcome was, I would know that I'd done everything I could to keep the pregnancy going. Of course. It's deep. It's deep. And so I honestly don't know if I would have been persuaded not to take bed rest, even though the evidence is against it. Right. This speaks to something that's really true in medicine, which is that sometimes these practices just persist even when most doctors know that they're truly not useful anymore. Now, this brings us to myth number two in our discussion, pain during labor. Now, I know, Carrie, that you are one of those women, as soon as you walk into the hospital, you demand the epidural, pain relief immediately, right? Hell yes. Yes. I would not go to the dentist without getting Novocaine, and I see no reason why I should give birth without an epidural. But I know, Rachel, that you have a somewhat different attitude. Why not try it naturally? Because uh, it hurts. Co- it hurt. It does hurt. And <laughs> yes. some people might want to take the edge off without the massive wallop of an epidural, which has all kinds of health implications. There just aren't enough options, right? Actually, there is another option. Nitrous oxide. Nitrous oxide. Okay, all I remember about nitrous oxide is that I had it when I was a kid when I needed a tooth pulled and I went to the dentist and they put this gas mask on me and it was very fun. Right, actually. it's laughing gas. So how does nitrous oxide like feel? How does it work? It's been described to me as, yes, you have contractions, you have pain, but you simply don't care anymore. Mm-hmm. And the nitrous oxide is generally used with oxygen in a 50-50 mix and it's used all over Europe and the UK. In fact, one study said that about 50% of laboring moms in the UK use it. And it's even been featured recently in the British TV series called The Midwife. This form of pain relief really is top hole. You start to breathe the gas before the contraction really gets its boots on. Thus, the pain begins. I indicate this to my attendant. The gas is activated. I breathe in and out. Nurse. Nurse, you can let go of the mask now. All in all, a thoroughly pleasant sensation. (laughs) So let's say that I'm about to give birth. Where can I get it? Can I have it? Well, if you're near the one hospital in San Francisco that has it or in Seattle, you can. But actually, the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, an academic hospital in New Hampshire, is in the process right now of getting nitrous and making it available for pregnant women. And I spoke to the certified nurse midwife there who's leading the charge, Suzanne Seurat. I About five years ago, I heard about nitrous oxide at an international midwifery conference in Canada. So many of us got ready to offer nitrous oxide, and then we couldn't get equipment to use it. And then in about January of this year, Porter Instruments got FDA approval for equipment that they had made to deliver nitrous oxide safely in the birthing situation. Right. So what's currently happening at your hospital? Um, We actually have the equipment. I'm looking at it right now. But because of the way we um, are billed, 
um, we couldn't bill if we added nitrous oxide to our list of pain medications that a woman could use. So it's a so typical it's, U.S. insurance quagmire. Um, I wouldn't call it so much a quagmire because we've gone to our anesthesia department and asked them if they would be willing to take this on as a project of theirs because anesthesia can bill for a woman in labor using nitrous oxide. And my hospital has the resources that if anesthesia won't bill for it, we're still going to get it. Right. But we're hoping to be able to bill for it so that other smaller hospitals who can't make that choice um, will be able to follow suit with how our anesthesia department's billing. Will this be cheaper than an epidural? Oh, quite a bit. The amount that we would bill for nitrous oxide use in labor would be about $90. Right. And I'm sure epidurals cost significantly more than that. That's right. I'll have to dig up my bill from years ago, but you're fairly confident with the research about its safety and effectiveness, right? Yes, um, very, because they've been using it in Europe. And we have a fair amount of information from UC San Francisco and Vanderbilt where they've been using it for a while now also. Mm -hmm. I have to say that at my hospital, everybody has been very supportive of getting this. Nobody's trying to stand in the way of it. Um, there's a lot of different committees that need to weigh in on it, but everybody has been quite supportive. I'm, I'm really sure that we'll get it in the end. So, Rachel, it sounds great, but you and I know there's never a free lunch in medicine. There's always risks as well as benefits. So what are the side effects? Well, Carrie, there are a few dizziness, drowsiness, lightheadedness, nausea, potential vomiting. Actually, it sounds a lot like my condition throughout labor. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, the greatest risk really is loss of consciousness, especially if there's too much nitrous in the mix. But that's why the self-administration part is so important. Oh. And doctors, so if you feel yourself going, you right, you're, you up. just sort of let go of the mask. So it's self-correcting. Apparently. Okay, so that's nitrous. And now, mazel tov, the baby's born, and now you have a few new things to worry about. Right, just a few things to worry about. Just right? a few yeah. for the next 20 or 25 years exactly. or so, or maybe actually kind of forever. But one of the first things that's usually done is to cut the baby's umbilical cord. And right. it's a clamping and then a cutting. And very often it's the first real job that the dad has. Right. I can remember my husband looking forward to an actual task that he can do. <laughs> it's nice. Right. I don't remember a thing. But anyway, I, right. I'm glad he could do that. Yeah. But some doctors argue that we should completely rethink the waiting period before clamping and then cutting the umbilical cord. Huh, who knew? Well, Carrie, a study recently came out analyzing the timing of cutting the umbilical cord. It was covered on the front page of the New York Times, in fact. Huh, wow. And what researchers found was that even waiting a minute or so to cut the umbilical cord... Uh, instead of 30 seconds? Right, allows blood to flow back to the baby, and that's blood that is rich in red blood cells and iron. And of course, this boosts hemoglobin levels and can help prevent anemia, which is a huge problem. And this is particularly important for premature babies, but even waiting that one minute can be hugely beneficial. But what about for all babies? Well, here's the rub, because the big kahuna professional group here, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, do say it's a good idea with premature babies, but with full-term babies, they say there are other issues. For instance, there could be a slightly higher rate of jaundice in babies who had delayed cord cutting. So they're not against it, but they're not actively for it. Exactly. Leaving, yes, leaving parents once again confused. Right. Now. But I talked to a pediatrician in the Bay Area, Alan Green, and he puts this in a little context, which is that until around 1913, we always waited 
to huh, cut the cord. And it, it started when birth started to become more medicalized, more women were giving birth in the hospital, and they believed that quick cord cutting was a way to deal with potential hemorrhaging. Of, of the mother, mother. Which was a ah. huge problem then. And so it became standard practice. Yet one more practice that becomes standard without full evidence. So now Green and others are reexamining the evidence and finding that there may often be reason to wait. That's right. Now, Dr. Green is advocating what he calls the optimal cord cutting time, which is like, we don't do this automatically, but we should really think about when is the best time for this particular baby to get their cord cut. Uh So basically he recommends consider your own particular circumstances and decide based on them whether you should delay the cord cutting or not. Right. Talk to your doctor. It's all an individual matter. Would depend on the circumstances. Okay, well, that's it for this week. Uh, Next week, it's quite a juicy topic. Rachel, how would you describe it? Topics below the waist. Right. These are medical sexual topics that are often not spoken of. And as you'll find, we are willing to speak about pretty much anything. Absolutely. The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our producer is George Hicks. The executive editor of WBUR.org is John Davidow. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Carrie Goldberg. And I'm Rachel Zimmerman. Be here next week. You betcha. I'll see you next week.